Well, if you have your Bibles, you can open with me to John chapter 8. And as you're, as you're turning there, what is it that happens when light shines? What, what happens to, to darkness when a light is turned on? That, that may sound like a silly question in the physical world. Because when a, when a light shines, darkness uh, immediately either diminishes or it vanishes completely. But in the spiritual realm, when, when light shines, darkness does not necessarily immediately disappear. And what we see in the Gospel of John as we have been uh, studying over the course of these uh, first few chapters, all the way into chapter 8 now, is that when the light of Christ shines, when the light comes into the world and shines into the darkness, the darkness fights. It doesn't just disappear. It fights against the light. This theme in John's gospel is uh, developed throughout, but it begins at the very beginning. If you, if you look with me at John chapter 1, verse 1, John writes that in the beginning was the word... And the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. And in Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There's a, a play on words there because that, that word overcome also uh, has the meaning of comprehending. Uh, that the darkness of this world does not comprehend and understand the light that shines in it, uh, nor does it overcome the light of Christ that shines in it. And as the, as the Gospel of John continues, this theme of light and darkness is uh, built throughout. And the light of Christ continues to to glow and and shine brighter and brighter as we continue our way through the gospel. Uh, His words and his works demonstrate not only that he was sent by God, he doesn't just represent God to us, Jesus presents God to us, that he himself is God. He is the one who shows us what God is like. Uh, That's what is stated in chapter 1, verse 18, that no one has ever seen God the only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. Now that Jesus explains who God is to us. When we get our picture and understanding of God the Father by looking at God the Son. And we're in a, a portion in John's Gospel now, uh, these uh, chapters 5 through uh, 10, uh, in which the, the feasts of Israel uh, are the, the setting in each of the, the chapters. Uh, and they are the, the focus uh, through which uh, Jesus is going to reveal who he is uh, to the nation of Israel. In John chapter 5, uh, the focus was upon uh, the Sabbath day. And Jesus healed on the Sabbath, and uh, there was a big controversy uh, that surrounded him healing on the Sabbath. And, and really, uh, in John chapter 5, a court case began. Uh, in which the Pharisees began to uh, prosecute uh, or persecute uh, Jesus uh, for who he was claiming to be. In John chapter 5, Jesus was claiming to be God. And that's the the first instance where the the Pharisees are picking up stones uh, to to kill him because he's making himself equal with God. So the trial of Jesus starts there in John chapter 5. Then in John chapter 6, we see another uh, feast uh, that... uh, with some surrounding events. In John chapter 6, it's the the feast of the Passover. And Jesus is going to to feed the 5,000. He's going to proclaim that he is the bread of life. Then John chapter 7 and 8, where we are studying right now, and really uh, the setting leaks all the way into uh, chapter 10, the middle of chapter 10. Uh, The the feast or the festival that's going to be the, the setting is the feast of tabernacles or the feast of booths. Then in John chapter 10, uh, I think verse 22, another setting is going to come to the forefront, the Feast of Hanukkah, the Feast of Dedication. 
Uh, so these feasts are going to be the, the means by which Jesus is going to point to spiritual realities, that, that the feasts uh, portray and picture uh, spiritual things that all point to who Christ is. And as Jesus presents himself in these feasts, his light shines brighter and brighter. But as the light of Christ shines brighter and brighter, uh, the darkness fights against him more and more. That's what we see, that there is a growing hostility. The brighter Jesus gets, the, the more evident his deity becomes in all that he is and all that he is doing. The, the, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, the world grows more and more hostile to him. And again, in John's gospel, this, this is the theme. That our world uh, is both a victim of darkness uh, and uh, perpetrators of darkness. Uh, That is what humanity does. We we suffer from sin, and yet we continue to sin. And as a result of this, the the world is growing darker. I don't necessarily need to tell you that. Uh, You feel it on a regular basis, right? And that shouldn't surprise us. Back in John chapter 3, verses 19 to 21, the Apostle John said this, This is the judgment that the light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. What we're going to see in John chapter 8 as we're working our way through this chapter is the desperation of the darkness uh, as it fights against the light. Uh, The religious leaders uh, at this point in time are uh, those who have set up and established a a false religious system that is enslaving the, the people of Israel. Uh, it, it's a works-based system uh, that says if you do these uh, good works, maybe you can work your way into heaven. It puts everybody on a hamster wheel with the Pharisees and the religious leaders uh, in control of the, uh, the speed at which everyone must uh, run. They are in control of it. Uh, and Jesus comes and he speaks against this. He speaks against this religious system. He speaks against the, re- the religious leaders who have set up this system. Two weeks ago, we we studied uh, John chapter 8, verse 12. On the last day of the the Feast of Tabernacles, uh, Jesus uh, stood up and and made an emphatic claim that that he is the light of the world. He says, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. What we're going to study this morning is uh, the immediate response uh, of the Pharisees. When Jesus stands up and proclaims this, what do they do? Oh, uh, let's look in, and see their response, beginning in verse 13, and let's read through the end of verse 20. Right after Jesus said this, So the Pharisees said to him, You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. And Jesus answered, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going But you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. And I am the one who bears witness about myself. And the Father who sent me bears witness about me. And they said to him, Therefore, where is your Father? And Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my Father. And if you knew me, you would know my Father also. And these words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. But no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. And before we, we dive in and study, let's, let's pause briefly and pray for the Lord's blessing upon our study of His Word this morning. Father, we come to You. 
acknowledging that you are the one who has sent Jesus. You have sent him to shine as a light in our world. To come to, to rescue sinners, to come and rescue us. For that, we thank you. We praise you. Father, we pray that you would help us to see into our own hearts this morning all the ways that uh, your light needs to shine in the darkness of our hearts, all the ways that we still cling to the things of this world. Shine forth through your word and the power of your spirit so that we comprehend all that you are teaching us in your word and that we might submit all of our lives to you without any parts hidden and tucked away. So, Father, help us to understand and apply your word this morning, and may we be transformed into the image and likeness of your Son, the one you have sent, who is our Lord and our Savior. Amen. Well, as we study this passage, uh, the trial of Jesus is continuing. As I said, it began in chapter 5, and it's continuing here, and language of a courtroom uh, is going to be prevalent here over and over again. Uh, the idea of a testimony, the idea of a witness, and, and uh, what makes a testimony of a witness valid or invalid. Uh, and uh, in these verses, we have the beginning of a, a heated debate uh, between Jesus and the Jewish religious leaders, a debate that's going to continue to escalate as we move along in John chapter 8, so that by the end of the chapter, if you look at verse uh, 59, uh, the Jewish leaders are, are once again having stones in their hand ready to kill Jesus for the things that he has spoken. And the, the debate that's going to take place here in this chapter centers around the origin and the authority of Jesus. Where does he come from, uh, and what does he uh, get to say? And say, Jesus, do you really have the right, the authority to say that? Can we really trust what you are saying? And the Pharisees are going to attack the validity of Jesus' testimony. And Jesus is going to defend his testimony and the authority that he possesses that supports what he is saying. As we study this passage this morning, we're going to see uh, the hostility of the darkness in the world around us. And we're going to see also the wisdom of Christ shining forth in the midst of that darkness. And if you and I are going to stand uh, firmly against the darkness, even as Christ does, we need to glean some of this wisdom. Now, we need to see and understand how he responds. And I pray that we will absorb some of the wisdom that he puts on display in our passage this morning. Uh, and as this is kind of the, the beginning of the, the opening statement in John chapter 8, uh, as, the, as the court case opens up, uh, we're going to see three parts to it in our uh, verses. And the, uh, verse 13 is going to be the attack against Jesus' testimony. Verses 14 through 18 are going to, to be the defense of Jesus' testimony. And then verses 19 and 20 is going to be the, uh, the, the counterattack of Jesus' testimony. But let's look first at uh, the attack of the Pharisees against the testimony of Jesus. And in verse 13, and uh, again, this is immediately coming off of Jesus' proclamation. Uh, in that when, uh, in verse 12, when he stands up and says, I am the light of the world, he is saying that he is the Messiah. Uh, and two weeks ago, we looked at this uh, in uh, Isaiah chapters 42 and 49. Uh, there are uh, the servant songs of Isaiah. There's... Uh, they're elsewhere in Isaiah as well. But in those two servant songs in particular, uh, the Messiah is spoken of as the servant of Yahweh who is going to be a light to the Gentiles, a light to the world. So when Jesus stands up and says, I am the light of the world, the Pharisees are immediately understanding that he's claiming to be the Messiah. And their response is, no, your testimony doesn't count. You don't get to say that because you can't testify about yourself. And, and in one sense, they are quoting Jesus' own words uh, from the first part of the court case, back in John chapter 5. Chapter 5, verse 31, Jesus said, If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. Jesus says, if it's only him standing up and claiming to be God without any uh, support, without anybody else to uh, attest to his uh, witness and his testimony, then yeah, his testimony shouldn't count. 
But, but there in chapter 5, Jesus says, if it's me alone, it shouldn't count. But then he goes and lists off uh, a series of witnesses uh, that give testimony uh, that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus is exactly who he claims to be. And in John chapter 5, uh, the, the witnesses that he lists off would be God the Father, John the Baptist, all of the miracles that he has performed, and then uh, fourthly, Jesus points to all of the Old Testament scriptures. Uh, Jesus points to, to Moses. He says, Moses wrote about me. And if you really believed Moses, you would believe me. And here in John 8, even though uh, it has already been demonstrated that there are multiple witnesses who testify concerning who Jesus is, the Pharisees are still trying to get Jesus' own testimony tossed out. All right, and when a, when a third grader is on the, the playground uh, and they don't like where a conversation is going, they usually transition into to hurling insults uh, or trying to disqualify the, what the other person said. Nuh-uh, that doesn't count. You're not the boss of me. Uh, and uh, now as adults, we don't do exactly that same quote, uh, but we do some of those same games uh, where, where we try and shift the argument uh, we attack rather than uh, dealing with I ideas. If we're losing an argument, we change tactics. There's a, a website known as uh, WikiHow. It's a very interesting article if you were to search how to get evidence thrown out in a court case. Uh, and it has these. It's got some great little graphics. And, but, but here are the ways that they list uh, to, uh, several tactics on how to get evidence thrown out in a court case. And, and one is to claim that the evidence should be excluded because it is unreliable. Challenge a, a witness's competency uh, or say this person isn't uh, qualified uh, to speak uh, on medical matters or on plumbing matters or whatever it may be. Another way to discredit uh, evidence and get it tossed out is to claim that the evidence should be excluded because it's prejudicial. Another way is to claim that uh, it's not authentic uh, and maybe it doesn't uh, lay the, the proper foundation. If you're going to say that this uh, photo of the car accident uh, is genuine, you also have to establish uh, the time and the location of the photo as well as the date and that's the car and that's the person. There's all of these things that you have to establish. So uh, maybe start to attack those things and get that evidence thrown out. Or maybe the evidence should be excluded because it was not properly collected. Maybe uh, uh, when uh, someone was arrested, they weren't read their Miranda rights. Uh, or there was no warrant uh, for the collection of the evidence. It gives all of these things. Right? If, if you know that there is evidence against you, then maybe the, the best tactic is to try and get that evidence disqualified. Uh, and so the, the Pharisees are doing exactly that. Maybe we can discredit Jesus. Maybe we can convince him that his testimony doesn't count. And, and Jesus responds, uh, as we're going to see. But the, the bigger point here is this attack by the Pharisees. See, they have seen so much of Jesus' ministry. They have seen the miracles. They have heard him speak. And they have come to the conclusion that we have to tear him down. We have to discredit him. And, and this is one conclusion, uh, but there are many, many others who are saying, if you remember what uh, the, the guards that were sent by the Pharisees to arrest Jesus back in chapter 7. The guards were sent and they heard Jesus. They were around him for several days looking for an opportunity to arrest him. And they come back to the Pharisees without Jesus and the Pharisees are like, well, where is he? Why did you not bring him? And they're like, have you seen and heard him talk? No one talks like this man talks. So the guards are around him for just a few days, and they realize something is very special and unique about Jesus. And the Pharisees immediately begin to attack them. The Pharisees are pursuing Christ to slander him, to tear him down. And in their unbelief, they say they don't have enough evidence. They can't trust Jesus' testimony about himself because he testifies about himself. They try and dismiss him on a legal technicality. Again, this is the, this is the response uh, of most unbelievers. Anybody who is unwilling to 
to submit their life to Christ. So I don't have enough to convince me. And a part of that is a disqualification of all of the evidence that they don't like. I don't want to have to deal with uh, everything that I see in Scripture. So let me start to, to chip away and try and discredit everything that I see. And then once I've discredited that, well, so I'm not convinced. Well, you've tossed out half of the evidence that you need to be evaluating. This is the, the normal way of our sinful hearts. We want evidence, but we dismiss the evidence. And those who do not believe do exactly what the Pharisees do here. They cast doubt upon Christ's birth, his miracles, his death, his resurrection. Again, when the light shines in the darkness in the spiritual realm, what does the darkness do? It fights. It attacks. And the Pharisees are attacking Jesus here. But also, the darkness fights, but the light responds. And Jesus is not just going to to stand by idly. uh, And he's going to respond in verses 14 through 18. He's going to make a defense uh, in concerning their accusation against him. And as we look at uh, verses 14 through 18 and, and see uh, Jesus' own defense of his testimony, he's going to present four arguments uh, of why uh, what they are saying is not true. So you can't testify about yourself. And Jesus said, well, let me, uh, let me address that. Uh, and the, the first argument that he presents uh, is in the first part of verse 14. He, Jesus testifies to his own authority. He says, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I am going. And so Jesus asserts uh, that he can testify. So if the the third grade Pharisees are saying, no, Jesus says, "Uh uh-huh, and he's getting into this argument with them, and he's he's not going to to play other trump cards. It's, I can too testify about myself, and let me tell you why. Part of this connects back to the proclamation he made in verse 12. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Well, how do you know that light exists? You see it. It it is self-evident. Light is its own testimony. It bears witness to itself. It doesn't prove its existence by arguing. It proves its existence by shining. That's what the light does. So Jesus, on one hand, is saying... I get to testify to myself because I'm the light of the world. Uh, His testimony is self-authenticating. But Jesus also asserts that he is able to testify about himself because he's omniscient, because he's eternal, because he's independent. He says, I know where I have come from and where I'm going. He has an understanding of his own origin, not meaning that he had a beginning, he's eternal, uh, meaning that his origin is in heaven. Uh, and he knows his, his destination is, once again, heaven. Uh, and he's going to contrast his knowledge of himself and his knowledge of uh, the entire time-space continuum. And he's going to contrast that with the Pharisees. He said, I know where I've come from and where I'm going, but the Pharisees don't know. They're finite in their knowledge of him and of the world around him. We are dependent creatures— Christ is the independent creator. And so he's saying, yes, I do get to testify about myself, and my testimony is still valid. The second argument that he presents to the Pharisees, in essence, that their human testimony cannot invalidate Jesus' authority. This is in the, the second half of verse 14 and then in verse 15. He says, I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. He says, I judge no one. Now, now in, in looking at this, not only do the Pharisees not know the origin and the, and the destiny of Jesus, is they judge according to the flesh. They, they judge according to human wisdom, and their understanding is finite. It's limited because they are men. And, and Jesus is condemning them because the one thing that the Pharisees loved to do, among all the other things that they loved to do, is they loved to judge other people 
concerning spiritual matters and the idea of who's in getting into heaven and who's not. Remember, they're in the control of the hamster wheel. Uh, they've set up their religious system and then they love to judge others. This is why uh, Jesus spoke the way that he did in the Sermon on the Mount. Again, our, our, uh, the world around us, favorite verses uh, of Jesus, Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 and 2. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. But again, the, the problem and the issue there is not in not saying never judge anybody. No, be discerning and understand that the measuring stick that you're going to evaluate and judge others with, if it's applied to you, you're going to be in big trouble. So understand that judgment is important, but judge wisely, judge righteously. But here Jesus is saying that because the Pharisees judge according to the flesh, really they will, they will never understand spiritual matters. If you keep your, your finger here in John, turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. What Paul writes here is going to, to shed a lot of light on what we're reading in John chapter 8 and what Jesus says of you judge according to the flesh. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 beginning in verse 6. The Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. What is Paul saying? Yeah, the, the Pharisees, the, the rulers uh, of uh, uh, the Jews, the religious leaders, they had no comprehension of who Jesus was because they judge according to the flesh. And Paul goes on to say, no one uh, who uh, is of the flesh can evaluate spiritual things. If we keep reading verse 9, but as it is written, what, eye has, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. And we impart this wisdom, impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because... They are spiritually discerned. That's what Jesus is saying to the Pharisees. Uh, they are the uh, epitome uh, of those who uh, are the natural person, judging according to the flesh. But once again, Jesus contrasts their judgment, their evaluation with himself. He says, they judge according to the flesh, and Jesus says, I judge no one. Now, in making that statement, there's a couple of different options because very clearly and previously in John's gospel, Jesus has said he has the right, the authority uh, to judge and that he does judge. But what he, he's saying here could be a couple of different things. Number one could just be saying uh, that he does not judge according to the flesh as the Pharisees do. That when he judges, he judges righteously, always. Another option is that he is saying that his judgment really isn't his own judgment because as we're going to see, he always judges uh, in connection and with God the Father. Uh, and that he's just executing what God the Father has already decreed, the judgment of God through Jesus Christ. And so when Jesus judges, he's doing so as the agent of the Father. So those are uh, a couple of options. Uh, either way, uh, the very next argument that Jesus presents uh, emphasizes that if he were to judge, he would do so righteously. Uh, and this, again, leads into uh, the third argument that he presents. 
uh, in verse 16, that God the Father testifies uh, to Jesus' authority. Uh, And Jesus says this in chapter 8, verse 16. He says, Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. So Jesus is saying, I I am always true and righteous and just in my judgments because, again, he doesn't judge alone on his own. But he does judge according to the Father's will. Back in John chapter 5, verse 30. He says, I can do nothing of my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Again, back in in John chapter 5, the beginning of the court case, Uh, God the Father is the first witness that Jesus points to. Uh, And he's going to now, here in John chapter 8, he's going to emphasize the witness of God the Father. Uh, And he's he's going to uh, appeal to God the Father as uh, a witness who is bearing testimony about him because if, if you think about the claims that Jesus has made and is making about himself, He has said that he is the Son of God who has been with God in eternity past, right? What does it take to prove that? Now, God the Father has been testifying to this in a variety of ways throughout the ministry of Jesus. Uh, In his miracles, in his teaching, ultimately, the, the, the final and ultimate testimony of God the Father regarding the Son is going to be the resurrection, Jesus conquered the grave. But, but along the, the way here, there's been so many other uh, statements made, in essence, by Christ, let alone at uh, the baptism of Jesus when God the Father, a voice, said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Uh, that declaration was made at the baptism of Christ. But ultimately, Jesus has to appeal to God the Father as a witness because... His claims can really only be verified by God. Uh, Leon uh, Morris, in his commentary on John's Gospel, says this, In light of his claims, no other witness than that of the Father is sufficient. If Jesus really stands in the relationship to God, in which he says he does, then no mere human is in position to bear witness. No human witness can authenticate a divine relationship. Jesus therefore appeals to the Father and himself, and there is not uh, none other uh, to whom he can appeal. And again, since Jesus is, is never alone in his judgment, uh, he appeals to God, says, I am always with God, testifying with God. Now that, that leads to the fourth argument uh, that, that Christ presents to the Pharisees of why their statement that he can't testify about himself is false. Uh, and Jesus is going to point to the Old Testament law. And his fourth argument is that the law validates Jesus' authority. And this is seen in verses 17 and 18. Because in your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. Now, in the Old Testament law, it was required that there would be two witnesses uh, in order to, uh, to bring about charges and to convict someone. Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15 says, A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the basis of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. And... and Jesus' words here in the the Greek are very emphatic. Uh, The ESV just says, in your law, but it's really in the law that belongs to you. Hey, this is, Pharisees, this is your own standard here. By their own standard, the Pharisees must accept the testimony uh, of two witnesses. If those two witnesses agree in what they're saying, the law says that it has to be accepted. So Jesus is pointing to the law and says, hey, Pharisees, you have to accept the, the witness, the testimony of two witnesses. Uh, and in the Greek, uh, Jesus, uh, he changes the word witnesses uh, and he says men. Uh, ESV translates it as people. Uh, but again, I think the, the change that Jesus makes here is uh, intentional. 
uh, because the law is emphasizing that if any two people, any two human witnesses testify together, then that testimony has to be accepted. How much more should the testimony be accepted if the two witnesses are God the Father and God the Son? I think that's what Jesus is implying there. And then verse 18 seems to to heighten the emphasis even more. As Jesus uses verb tenses uh, to, to indicate that his own testimony about himself and the Father's testimony about him, they, they are ongoing, present tense realities. Uh, the, the testimony of the Father and the Son continues even now. It's very emphatic. And if, if we can kind of come up for air, I know we kind of rushed through those, uh, those arguments pretty quickly. Let's put ourselves in the sandals of someone there in the temple that day. Okay, we see uh, Jesus proclaiming that he is the light of the world. We have the, the response of the, the Pharisees saying, no, you can't do that. You can't uh, proclaim and testify about yourself. And then Jesus just works through these arguments. And he completely dismantles everything uh, that the Pharisees have said. And so what was intended to be a, a weapon used against Jesus that, that they brought out to the courtroom. It's like Jesus is there on trial. He takes the evidence that they bring to get him against him and he reconfigures it and points it back at them. And actually, you are the ones who are guilty right now of not accepting the testimony of two witnesses, which by your own law, you must accept. That's what just happened. So if we're there, we're seeing this and like, okay, what, what's going to take place next? They tried to, to turn this on Jesus and Jesus turned it right back around on them and his perfect wisdom. What we see, or I guess we could ask, well, what's, the, what's the point of all of this? Well, you might say, well, don't get into an argument with Jesus uh, because you're going to lose. But again, the, the, the bigger point is the, the sinfulness of the Pharisees. It has been demonstrated just in this little conversation uh, that the issue is not evidence. The issue is not testimony. The issue is a hardness in their own hearts, a rejection of Christ and all that he claims and all that he has said. Others around are seeing Jesus for all that he is. And they are believing. But the Pharisees and the other religious leaders, their hatred for and rejection of Jesus is growing stronger and stronger. And no matter what he says, they will not listen. They reject and they doubt everything that he says. And this is going to be made even more clear in in the third and final portion uh, of these opening statements uh, in verses 19 and 20. The counterattack of Jesus' testimony, because that wasn't the counterattack yet. But if you look at these verses, you just look at verse 19. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? So Jesus, if, if you're calling your father as your second witness, let's see him. Where is he? And so there's an, there's an element to this in which uh, this is kind of part bewilderment because they they want to see this witness that Jesus is uh, referring to, but it's also part insult. Because at this point in time, uh, Jesus' stepfather, Joseph, uh, who they would look to as Jesus' earthly father back in chapter 6, verse, I think, 42, they say, is this not the son of Joseph, uh, whom we know? But at this point in time, Joseph has, has died, and he's no longer present. So I think this is, this is part insult of, yeah, show us your father who's dead, who's not going to come and bear witness for you right now. A, a derision against Jesus. Also later on in this chapter, going to accuse Jesus of being born of sexual immorality. There's all of this uh, derision. So this is insult and bewilderment, but... This is also a, this question is a demonstration of their absolute misunderstanding uh, of what Jesus is saying. And it's more irony. I really want to meet the Apostle John in person because he sounds like a very ironic and sarcastic guy and just loves to put in these layers of things. 
Uh, And this question from the Pharisees is ironic because the very question that they're asking proves what Jesus is about to say. They're saying, so where is your father? Indicating they really don't know the father of Jesus. They don't know God. And that's going to be Jesus' point. Back in John chapter 5, again, the beginning of the court case, Jesus' point was that the, the Pharisees' rejection of him revealed that they did not believe Moses. John chapter 5, verses 46 and 47, For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? And then here in John chapter 8, the argument is similar, but the indictment is, is far more severe. Because when they ask, well, well, show us your second witness. Where is your father? Jesus says this. You know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. And what Jesus says here in the question of the Pharisees, that's going to be the the spark uh, of the debate for the rest of the chapter. Uh, Because the the argument is now going to turn in future verses uh, on who gets to call God their father. And so Jesus is the one saying, no, God is my father. And the the Jewish leaders are going to be saying, no, no, he's our father. And and there's going to be accusations uh, flying throughout the remainder of the chapter. And we'll get to to study that. But, but what Jesus says here in verse 19, this is one of the most severe indictments that you can read in Scripture. Uh, and it's a severe indictment because th- the Pharisees were absolutely convinced that they knew God. And again, they had created this uh, false religion in which they were at the top. They were really the only ones who could be sure of their own salvation because they were rich and they were blessed uh, by God and they had all of these other, uh, the common people in Israel working on their hamster wheels to try and earn their salvation according to the rules of the religious leaders. And then Jesus comes and says, you have no relationship with God the Father. And this is, this is profound because it shows the severity of self-deception. If For those who are in the darkness, they're deceived even about the darkness. And when those who are in the darkness firmly believe that they are themselves the light, now that, that is the, the height of, or maybe the, the depth of unbelief. Okay, this is when, uh, in Matthew chapter 6, when, uh, if you turn back with me there to the Sermon on the Mount, speaking about rightly assessing things, and he's speaking about treasure and where to store up treasure. Matthew chapter 6, verse 19, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. He's talking about treasure, and then he immediately changes to speak about the eye. And you're like, why, why did he do that? He says, verse 22, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? Saying if you don't have a right understanding of what is true and what is false, of what is right and what is wrong, It's going to lead you to evaluate everything in life incorrectly. The treasures of this life will seem most important, but the treasures in this life, what happens? Moth and rust destroy them. Thieves break in and steal them. That's where Jesus says, assess things rightly and store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. But he points out again, if if you assess things wrongly, And if you think that your standard is what is right when it's really wrong, then the light that is in you is going to be darkness. And that's what we see here with the Pharisees. They are so convinced that they are the light and that Jesus is the darkness. They even say this. Matthew chapter 12, they they say that Jesus performs his miracles by the power of Satan. Even later on in John chapter 8, if you look at verse 48, 
The Jews answered him, are, you, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Right? They are so convinced that they are the sources of light. When really, Jesus says, no, you're, you are the darkness. A lot to, to pull out of that. Because right now, even in our own cultural moment, everything is about making uh, our nation and the individuals in our nation conform to a very specific ideology. Right, to conform to uh, the sexual revolution, to conform to the ideology of social justice. And the people in our world are fighting for the advancement of these ideas, which we've looked at in the past. They are fighting so passionately for them because what do they believe? They believe that they are the light. Uh, and that Christianity, anyone who would follow Christ, they say we are stuck in the darkness. That we are the, those who have been bound by Christianity. It's been holding back our, all of Western civilization for hundreds of years now. But this is the exact mindset of the Pharisees. This is the exact mindset that continues among those who are in the darkness. Sin deceives us into thinking that we are in the light when we're really in the darkness. And Jesus is going to address this. If you just look at the next passage for next week, verse 21. So he said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Verse 24, I told you that you would die in your sins unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. And the only hope of salvation that we have is to recognize rightly that we are in the darkness. That our sin has blinded us, that it is holding us captive, and our only hope is to be found in Christ. He's the one who helps us to see rightly. As we look at this passage, when, when darkness was masquerading as light, what did Jesus do? He rightly identified it. He says, no, you're not the light. You're still stuck in the darkness. You do not know me, and you do not know God the Father. That's calling it what it is. And when the darkness masquerades as light in the present, what are we to do? You'll understand, the darkness of the culture always masquerades as light. Always. And sometimes there's even darkness masquerading as light in the church. Sometimes there's darkness masquerading in our own hearts. Whoa, pastor, you're getting personal here. But we have to see and understand that. We have to go back to verse 12. Are we convinced that Jesus is the light of the world? That he gives life, that he helps me to rightly see all of reality? In all of those situations, whether it's darkness masquerading in the culture, in the church, or in our own individual hearts, the remedy is for the light of Christ to shine forth, for the truth of God's Word to be proclaimed in the power of God's Spirit, to transform hearts and minds. And so that the spiritual darkness and the powers behind it would be exposed for what they are that we are commanded to do. Years ago, I had a, a friend who uh, wanted me to watch this Western movie with him. And he was really talking it up. Like, oh, it's a great movie. So we, we sit down and, and watch it. And I was rather disappointed. Uh, the, the movie wasn't very exciting. Uh, it didn't really build up to like some big gunfight scene or anything else. And it didn't end on a high point and it didn't end on a, on a low point kind of anticlimactic i was kind of shocked that the movie was over i was oh wait that was it like did we hit the next chapter on the remote somehow and skip something uh and at the end of the movie i'm like i kind of expressed like that was it you said this was a great movie uh and i always remember what my my friend said he says that that movie is a slice of life uh, and, and what he meant by that is 
Uh, the movie was intended to communicate what life is, was like at a given period of time. It's intended to show uh, how people lived and, and what the, the culture was, what the reality was. And John chapter 8 has, has lots of theology, uh, and that's even an understatement. Uh, John chapter 8 has uh, so much theology, it's easy to, to drown in it. But John chapter 8 is also a slice of life. John chapter 8 helps us to see uh, the cultural climate, helps us to see what life is like following Christ. It teaches us about the darkness of the world around us. It teaches us about the wisdom of Christ. And it helps to prepare us to live according to the wisdom of Christ in the darkness of the world around us. Seeing and understanding who Jesus is and all that he promises, all that he does. As we step away from this passage, I, I hope that we would keep, keep three things in mind. Number one, may we be convinced of the absolute importance of knowing Christ. If we do not know the true Jesus of Scripture, we have no relationship with God the Father. Now, that truth is so important. We don't get to, to create a Jesus of our own making. It's not Jesus, my imaginary friend. I believe in him. No, the Jesus of the Bible. The Jesus that Jesus says he is, is the one that we must believe in. And if we don't have a relationship with him, we have no relationship with God. We must be convinced of that. Secondly, we have to be convinced that there is no greater joy than knowing Christ. Okay, of understanding the, the importance of knowing Jesus means that we, we know God the Father. But, but also being convinced that this is what we were created for. To know Christ, to rejoice in Him, to have a relationship with Him. The Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 3 says, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Are we convinced of that? That knowing Christ is so important that everything else should be done away with? If I could add a, uh, another point, I have a, a third thing. I'm, this is on the fly. But, but understanding how we can be deceived, again, into thinking that we know Christ, that we know God when we really don't. That we have to approach Christ humbly in faith, uh, asking, acknowledging our sin, acknowledging his holiness, understanding who he is as the son of God who lived a perfect life and died on behalf of sinners so that we could be reconciled to God the Father. And we have to understand we can be deceived in that. So we must examine ourselves. And then lastly, that may we be encouraged to stand boldly for Christ against the darkness of this world. If you look at verse 20, it reminds us God has a plan. It's working perfectly in accordance with everything else. Verse 20 says, These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. Starting to, to see little breadcrumbs uh, trailing along in John's gospel. These little statements, oh, the hour's not yet here, the hour's not yet here, and then finally, oh, the hour has come. Jesus will be arrested, uh, he'll be tried, and he will be executed. All of that is according to God's plan, and God's plan is still moving forward perfectly right here and right now. And we have to be convinced that the, line, the light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not, nor will it ever, overcome it, will not comprehend it. But we have to be convinced of that so that we can stand firmly in the truth of God's word and demonstrate the wisdom and love of Christ in a world of darkness. Amen? Let's pray.